Good morning. My name is Whitley Bechtel, and I have the privilege of reading the scripture for this morning. It comes from Luke 18, 9 through 14. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Thank you, Davis and Whitley. I'm very thankful both of you are in our church. Well, I want to start our morning a little differently than normal, um, unrelated to (laughs) what Davis prayed about. Um, I know social distancing and COVID and everybody's kind of sometimes sitting apart, but I want to just take two minutes, wherever you're sitting and if you're by yourself and it's just easier to scratch a note on a th- your, with your thumbs or with a pen and paper. Discuss one thing just for two minutes, wherever you're at. Um, Sunday best. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? And why might it be one or the other? Sunday best, this idea that when you come to church, you bring your Sunday best, you wear your Sunday best. Good thing, bad thing, why? Just two minutes, all right? Can we do that? Okay, two minutes. I'm gonna sit here and come right back up in a minute. Well, I'm going to bring us back in. (laughs) I'd love to pause and just take answers, but I'm not going to. Um, Each Sunday I preach, I typically come to church before most of you. um, Usually no one else is here. Um, No no one is ever here. (laughs) Uh, To practice my sermon, to work through it, to pray, to preach, to get ready for Sunday. When I come that early, I don't come in my Sunday best. (laughs) Uh, sometimes if the sermon's going poorly, or if the music team arrives early, they see me um, in the morning. It, I wouldn't call it my Sunday worst, <laughs> I don't think. Maybe they would call it that. Um, but it's not my Sunday best, but you get the idea. And then I go home, and I eat breakfast, and I shower and come back and, and dress more appropriately. So as you discuss Sunday best, I don't know whether you think Sunday best is a good idea, um, bad idea. Really, I just wanted you to see how it might be either If you have a date or a job interview, it says something about that date or job interview if you come in sweatpants, right? A first date, maybe. It says you don't really care and the other person's not all that important. So we dress well on dates and interviews because we communicate that what we're doing matters. I don't think that's wrong. But what if Sunday Best keeps people away who don't have the right clothes or the right manners or whatever? That's, that's not good. And, and, and what if on the other side, someone does have a Sunday best, um, and they come, and they wear it, and perfectly put together, and they love it in wrong ways. So I hope you can see a few of the issues. Uh, I want you to know God sees all of those issues, and he's here to help us. <laughs> 
I want to pray here as we begin and, and look at this passage that Whitley read a moment ago. Would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, you see us as we really are. We sang moments ago about coming to the place of level ground, but that's the only ground there is. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to see that, but to see the truth on the other side of that, that you are a God who comes down to us when we could never climb our way to you. Help us this morning, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, for the last maybe six or seven years, um, I've read a bunch of books, so maybe 80 to 100 a year, it's kind of ridiculous, Um, it's kind of a weird quirk about me, but there's one book that I've probably read five times at least, Um, maybe if you count the audiobook, it might be another two more times. And it's certainly in my top five of all-time books. Uh, It's a book by a pastor in St. Louis named Zach Eswine. Um, He wrote a book about pastoral ministry called The Imperfect Pastor, which I have here. And we don't normally start our sermons with a discussion. And we don't normally start uh, reading to you. But I'm going to go ahead and just, since we're doing things we don't normally do, I'm going to go ahead and do another one. And I'm going to read to you for a bit. Um, I'd like to read to you. The first three pages of chapter two in this book called The Imperfect Pastor. Um, and just, just to set the stage, there's a heaviness to some of these words because they deal with a pastor who took his own life. And Zach Eswine left his role as a seminary professor to come in and fill in at that church. And so this is some of, <clears throat> excuse me, some of that story. Chapter two, Recovering Our Humanity. You can be like God, the serpent says. It's an allusion to Genesis 3 and Adam and Eve. But how, I ask? I read the Bible with glasses. I kneel to pray for people with coffee breath. I stand to preach Jesus with a blister on my foot. I serve the Lord's Supper with bread bought for $1.99 at Schnook's Grocery Store. In St. Louis, that's like Giant or Weiss. Just pretend it is otherwise, the snake responds. People love it that way. Advice for a would-be pastor. I had recently learned that a longtime pastor and personal mentor committed suicide. I took a sabbatical from the seminary where I served as professor and spent six months as an interim pastor with my departed friend's family and congregation. I had pastored a church before. I had served as an interim before. But not like this. We would forge together for scraps of grace and truth amid the wreckage. The living Christ would inhabit the heaps with us. We would learn from him in the trash. He would sup with us in the shadow's valley. But presently, I was seated in a crowd of professors and ministry students in our jeans and tennis shoes. So he's saying, this is the main context, but in this one moment, I was there with a bunch of other seminary professor types, ministry types. I was asked to give a word, Eswine writes. What could I say to help a rookie in ministry? The atmosphere was light, but my heart was heavy. I was thinking about how my pastor mentor 
could have chosen to step down from ministry and still have mattered to all of us. But for him, stepping down in the midst of inner haunting indicated not humanity, but failure. He could not see himself useful if he no longer held the position of pastor with the care for others that that position enabled. I missed him. I was, for the first time in my life, asking myself the same question. Did I know that I could serve Christ humanly and significantly, whether I was not a pastor or leader in ministry? I did not know it at the time, but I would soon have to answer such question in a painful and public way, and he did, not necessarily through his fault. For the moment, however, among those ministry students with grief in my heart and soberly confronting my assumptions about what it meant to lead in ministry, it was now my turn to speak. I breathed a quick prayer and stood. That's when I said it. Jonathan Edwards farted. Jonathan Edwards has lived 250 years ago. Some call him the greatest theologian America's ever had. Some laughed, S. Wine writes. I didn't. Some smirked at my irreverence. Maybe I was irreverent. I wasn't trying to be funny. I probably could have found better language to describe what I was grappling with. I had no intention to disparage the great theologian and pastor from America's history. I was trying to put words to the damage and myth of his celebrity and others. I felt harassed by a new question in my being. What does it mean for us that if revival came and we went on into the night with heaven-sent prayer, we'd all still have to use the bathroom at some point? I wanted to say that even the greatest theologians or preachers among us are still just ordinary persons needy for grace in Jesus. I was tired of pretending otherwise. There's two more paragraphs. First things first. At a conference, I preach Christ for you with a hemorrhoid while my books are on sale in the hallway. What is more, I may have seen myself in my children's eyes that morning and had to ask their forgiveness for something the day before. Or maybe I'm still blind as I speak to you regarding what my wife or children or my congregation still desperately need me to see. When I visit you in the hospital, I had to tie my shoes that morning or figure out which sweater might look, make me look a bit slimmer or cry out to God with my own doubts as I hurt and I have no answer why. When you've been changed by grace through something I said or wrote, I likely had a bowl of oatmeal for breakfast or enjoyed the sound of the owl that visits our place. Therefore, as we begin to think about desires, we need to cry from the rooftops that pastoral ministry is creaturely. A pastor is a human being. I believe that, and this is his thesis in the book, I believe that the Christian life and ministry are an apprenticeship with Jesus toward recovering our humanity and, through his spirit, helping our neighbors do the same. All of this is for, through, by, with, and in him for the glory of God. What do you think of Zach Eswine, the imperfect pastor? 
I will tell you that chapter haunts me. The whole book does, in a way. Our passage this morning talks about a Pharisee praying. He's rather good at praying. At least, he's good at stringing words together in front of a crowd, if that's what praying is. We'll talk more about him in this passage in a minute, but I wanted to frame the issue before us as it really is. A matter of life and death. When you pull off Sunday best, or Facebook best, or workplace best, or whatever best, and people love you, you swell with pride. That's the Pharisee in our passage. But what happens when you try to pull off your best and it's not good enough? Or people don't like it. Or worse, they don't like you. The opposite of pride is despair. But it has the same root. A focus on self. Our church is in a sermon series called All Who Are Weary. The idols that exhaust us and a savior who won't. We're looking at the heart of Christ, which is gentle and lowly. He tells us in Matthew 11 how his burden is for sinners. And one way we tend to become weary is through constant attention to ourselves, specifically how we come across to others. We chose a passage this morning Where one man can't stop manicuring his image. And the other man gave up and let God deal with him as he really was. I want to look at the details of this passage one verse at a time and then apply it to us. So if you have a Bible, you can glance down, pull one off the the pew in front of you. It won't be on the screen, but I'm just going to read a verse or two at a time and, and walk us through this passage. We begin in verse 9 of chapter 18 in Luke. It says, he also, that's Jesus also, he had just previously told the parable, he's, he's going to tell another one. We read verse 9, he also told this parable to who? To some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Notice that right out of the gate, we already know what the parable is about. There's no ambiguity. There's those then, as there were, are those now, who trusted in themselves and think they're righteous in themselves. So Jesus tells a story. Just think about that for a moment. Jesus sees a problem, people who think they're righteous, and in his love, he goes right at it. Like, that's that's Jesus. He doesn't leave these people where he found them. And I want to let you in a little secret hear about our sermon series. Uh, it would be okay to laugh a little bit here. But this summer, our pastor elders began this process of thinking and discussing and praying about what are our strengths here at this church and, and also what challenges we have in front of us. Where, what weaknesses do we have as a church? Perhaps what weaknesses are we symptomatic of, of the church more broadly across America that, that, that manifest themselves at our church as well? And so, we wrestled with how to let the word of God expose those weaknesses, critique them, and and Lord willing to heal them. 
And so I joke that we could preach a 10-week series called Things You're Really Bad At. (laughs) I didn't think that would come off quite right. (laughs) So we chose a different title. But I will tell you, that's a little bit of what we're doing here this fall. We're trying to unearth these things in our hearts. Work, next week sex, last week politics, this week manicuring our image. We're trying to wrestle with what are these things we're so bad at? And how does Jesus draw near to us? I believe that strong words, when coupled with the gospel, make beautiful Christians. And I think that's what Jesus believes too. Jesus told this parable, Luke writes, to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. So let's look at how this parable begins. Verse 10, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector, Jesus said. In the first century, there were several different stripes of Judaism. When you hear Pharisee, think Bible scholar, think seminary professor, think evangelical pastor. If you've been around Christianity for a while, or if just perhaps because of the cultural way we speak of Pharisees, um, you know that generally they're getting uh, critiqued throughout the Gospels and in culture. To be a Pharisee is a bad thing, and they were, but to the ears of Jesus' audience, the Pharisees were the good guys. When Jesus picks on the Pharisees in the Gospels, they're the best faction in Judaism. Again, they're the good guys. Tax collectors, however, were not, and tax collectors were not we're the bad guys, not simply for the ways that we might be annoyed by taxes today. It's, it's something much more significant going on. So here's how taxes worked in the first century. Israel was occupied by Rome. And Rome extracted taxes by contracting Israel's own citizens to do the dirty work and to do so excessively. And if necessary, by force. So a tax collector would bid on a certain region saying something like, I'll give you 500 million for that Jericho region or that Susquehanna region. And then whatever they could get above and beyond that, say a few extra million, they could keep. We don't really think of tax collectors this way, as the uber, uber bad guys, but that's how it worked. And so if you're politically minded, have strong opinions about that, um, really could have these convictions about what's best for America and what's worse for America, then probably it would just be helpful for you to see the other political candidate that you most disagree with as this tax collector. So if you super hate Trump, tax collector's Trump. If you super hate Biden, Biden's the tax collector. That's the feeling the original audience would have had. And if you super hate one of the, both of them, like you can play last week's sermon <laughs> and wrestle with other things. And how we're going to live in America on November 4th when one of them's president. But next, Jesus walks through the prayer of these two men. First, with the Pharisee. Let's look at his words, verses 11 and 12. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus. Imagine just standing, hand on the chest, and look this thoughtful gaze to the sky. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. Amen. 
The, tr- the prayer is rather impressive. He manages to use the word I five times, two verses. Brian Regan is a comedian I've enjoyed over the years, and he has this skit. It's actually kind of old now. You can Google it. Uh, called the Me Monster. It's fantastic. But the Me Monster is this person in social studies who always has a better story, better, better, better anecdote, better... Uh, he, has this, he says, don't ever try and tell a two wisdom teeth story because someone with four wisdom teeth is going to parachute out of nowhere and tell their story of how they had four wisdom teeth pulled out. Anyway, it's a great little bit. This Pharisee is something of a me monster. You get the impression that this Pharisee's thanking of God is this obligatory nod. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. You know, this opportunity to pat himself on the back. God, I thank you that I'm a good guy, not like the bad guys out there. You know, the extortioners, the greedy, the adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Right, did you notice that? Did you notice the singularity in his prayer? The Pharisee stays somewhat generic, and then he makes this tax collector a prop in his own moral goodness. This Pharisee needs others to be bad so he can be good. In his mind, there's a limit to the supply of goodness. There's a limit to the amount of approval that could be had in the world. And if someone else has it, he can't have it. The phrase zero-sum game. There's only certain quantity. If someone else has it, I can't have it. Therefore, I need to cultivate it and tear others down. That's what's going on here. And he does a good job of tithing. Tithe is a literal tenth, as that word means, of giving away his income. And he says, quote, all that he gets. So sometimes Christians talk about, do I give based on my gross income, like what I get before taxes or other fees? Or do I give just on like my take-home pay? That's an interesting discussion. But this guy gives a tenth of everything. Back in chapter 11 of Luke's gospel, Jesus rebuked the religious leaders with these words, Woe to you, Pharisees. Now, woe is like this Old Testament judgment. Woe to you, Pharisees. For you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. (laughs) The Pharisees tithe out of their spice rack. And he often fasts. He, he, He sets aside food so he can pray, probably prayers like this. And the Old Testament only commanded one day a year where the people of God were required to pray. You might set aside other times of prayer to draw near to God, to something hard in your life, and you're going to bring it before him. Say, Lord, more than food, I want this. Help this, Lord. More than, more than I want to eat right now, I need you to come and move. So could have done that volunteer, but only one day was required, the day of atonement. So one day a year, this Pharisee fasts twice a week, so not one day a year, but 104 times. Likely those listening to Jesus tell this parable would have wondered what the issue was. This is a good prayer. But this man's prayer was ugly because his heart was ugly. Look in contrast at the tax collector's prayer. Verse 13. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. We read that he stands, quote, far off and would not even lift his eyes to heaven. You've probably seen war movies before, some of you maybe. And, and you know, there's this scene like, like the, that's this trope, and it, it's probably really a good one. I've never been in battle like this, so I don't know. But, like, there's the war happening, and all of a sudden, like, 
something happens, the guy next to him gets shot or he's shot in the shoulder or whatever. And like all the outside noise just goes away. And you're like inside the head of the soldier and the, 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 like all the chaos of war is gone and you just hear, and like maybe his heartbeat beat. And it's like everything else is there, but it's not there. There's just the task in front of this soldier. And, and I think about this parable and this tax collector, and you get the impression that this tax collector went to the temple not to be seen by others, but to do business with God. He's so overcome with emotion, he doesn't even see anybody else. And you'll notice his prayer is shorter, too. In fact, the Pharisee's prayer is introduced that way. In verse 11, it says, he prayed. Do you notice how the tax collector's prayer is introduced? Verse 13. We're just told he talks. He beat his breast, quote, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He doesn't have this special tone of prayer. When I talk to God, I have to talk like this. He just prays. He's who he is. And he acknowledges what he knows is true, that if God doesn't have mercy, he has no hope. Notice the conclusion Jesus draws, verse 14. I tell you, Jesus says, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus points out that this tax collector is justified, not the religious expert. To be justified is to have God's goodness applied to you. That when God sees you, he sees his own goodness shine upon you. Not your own unrighteousness. Justified is courtroom language. If you ask people if they think they will go to heaven... Many people will say yes. And then if you say why, they'll likely say, many people at least... I'm a good person. In fact, there was this whole school of evangelism that trained people to walk through those questions. I don't know that it's necessarily a bad approach. It's interesting to just throw that out there at the start of a conversation about why Jesus matters. In the last verse of the parable, Jesus is saying it doesn't work that way though. If you stand in God's courtroom pleading your own merits, pleading your church attendance, pleading your generosity, pleading whatever else you'd like to claim, pleading your own manicured version of you or who you think you are, then you'll go to hell. In God's courtroom, we're all guilty. Only those who plead Christ's grace or plead Christ's mercy get grace. That's the passage. It would be very easy to preach this passage and leave going, Lord, thank you that I'm not like this Pharisee. (laughs) But I suspect we are more like him than we realize. I wanted to take time to apply this passage in two different areas. I wanted to first talk about social media and then the church. This morning, I cut everything I had about social media, nearly. Um... I even had this great extended quote from Tony Ranke's book, 12 Ways Your Phone Is Changing You. It's Ranke's a uh, Christian journalist who writes thoughtfully about um, technology and the Christian faith. And, and I cut all that and I cut all my applications about social media, mostly because as I re-looked at it, I, thought, I found that everything I had written was true enough. It just felt uninteresting. I, I just feel like that, 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 that's played out 
We're all bad at it. Many of you are bad at it. And so, <laughs> so there it is. Um, but I thought I would save just one comment, and that's this. I want to plead with those of you who are addicted to social media type things of just favor and likes and posting and manicure. You know, do I use the Valencia filter or the other filter on Instagram? Um, I just wouldn't want to plead with you one comment, um, especially if you're in high school, middle school, college. I mean, Facebook wasn't, Facebook launched during my last years of college. So like, I didn't have that as a struggle then. But I just say to you to paraphrase perhaps what Jesus says in Matthew 5 about another sin, that if your social media account causes you to sin, it would be better to delete your account and be saved than to have 100,000 followers into hell. There's something better. If it's a snare, throw it away. If it's not a snare, use it as a tool. It's a tool. That's what it is. A tool for the right things and not the wrong things, I should say. But I want to briefly apply this passage, not to social media, but to the way we manicure our image here at church. Each week we preach our best. We preachers do our best to create an environment where you can come and where God can challenge you and where he might speak his love over you. Perhaps we're not as good at preachers as we could be. That's certainly true. Perhaps our music choices could be better. I don't know whether that's true or not. Perhaps the nature of having another service right after this one prevents us from doing business with God. Perhaps all those things are true and others. But I would tell you this. In the last two years of preaching, since the preaching we did through... The book of Job in the fall of 2018. I can think of only two times where someone has come forward after me to speak who is distraught over their sin and needing of grace. Why? I know we all have different temperaments. I know we're not all in crisis mode each week, and that's a good thing. But why do we not come? doesn't have to do with our Sunday best. I know culturally we don't, no one wears a suit anymore. I wore jeans today in part on purpose. But does Sunday best still exist in a different way? Lord, I thank you that I'm not needy of prayer, needy of encouragement. Lord, thank you that I can hold it together. Lord, thank you that I'm not like those who need help from a pastor. Lord, thank you that I'm a pastor and not like those in my church who need help. This passage talks about prayer, so we'll stay here for a few more minutes. Some of you will never pray in a small group setting. Why? Again, we all have different temperaments, and that's a good thing. But some of you will never pray because of pride. What do you mean, you say? I don't pray because I'm not good at prayer. How could my not praying be pride? I'm humble about knowing I'm not a good prayer, therefore I don't pray. I'll explain. Thank you for asking. Perhaps you don't like to pray for the same reason the Pharisee did like to pray. We know people are watching. Being terrified to pray out loud might be the other side of the same coin of not wanting to pray out loud. 
Our fear of what people think might be the same as our hope of what they might think. Both are self-focused. I'll keep going. What about your prayer requests? There's nothing wrong with prayer requests for travel mercies. And please pray for someone who I never see or talk to, but I think has a health challenge. Those type of prayers, requests. It's a good thing to pray for them. But do you use them as a diversion tactic? These prayer smoke bombs. (laughs) To evade the issues of your own heart. When was the last time you heard someone pray, pray, please, please pray for me, I'm greedy. Please pray for me, I'm tempted to believe God isn't good because he won't fix X, Y, or Z. Please pray for me because my heart is so wrapped around the idol of politics, I, I can't think straight. Let's draw our sermon to a close. During college, I worked at a Christian sports camp in southern Missouri. And mirrors were not hung around campus except for the one I stood in front and brushed my teeth at at the beginning and the middle of, or the beginning and the end of the day. And I'll tell you that although the absence of mirrors was strange at first, I grew to really love it. Um, I wouldn't have realized that mirrors are everywhere about our homes, our schools, our businesses, but you notice the contrast right away when mirrors go missing. You notice how mirrors invite the occasional glance. Okay, I'm good. We'll keep going, you know. Just to check and recheck your appearance. And I say all of this as a dude <laughs> who the entire summer for 100 days straight, my, out, my wardrobe consisted of rotating five shirts and gym shorts. <laughs> like that was my, but I'm still like, oh, oh, there's no mirrors. This is strange. It was a gift to forget about mirrors and image for a summer. Manicuring our image is exhausting work. A few years ago, uh, Brant Hansen, a radio DJ, personality, whatever you want to call him, uh, wrote a book called Unoffendable. It's a good book, and he has this quote from supermodel Cameron Russell, who says, If you're ever wondering, if I have thinner thighs and shinier hair, will I be happier? Then you just need to meet a group of models, because they have the thinnest thighs and the shiniest hair and the coolest clothes, and they're the most physically insecure people on the planet. I'm guessing this Pharisee, whether he knew it or not, was exhausted. It's like he needs his own PR team to constantly manicure his image. He can't fail. It has to work. He has to be seen as righteous. So I come back to where I began. Pastor Zach Aswain writes of the pastor who took his own life. He could not see himself if he no longer held the position of pastor with the care for others that that position enabled. I missed him. I was for the first time in my life asking myself the same question. Did I know that I could serve Christ humanly and significantly whether I was a pastor or leader in ministry? You're not pastors, most of you. But do you know you can serve Christ humanly like as a creature with limits and physicality? Do you know you can serve Christ humanly without projecting an aura that you're a supermodel Christian? You can. When I speak at weddings, I often mention the idea of God's covenant love because marriage is a covenant, right? And I often talk about 
covenants are these one-sided agreements where a person resolves to keep his or her end of the agreement, whether the other person does or not. It's the opposite of a consumer relationship where I just go there as long as they keep up their goods. Covenant is, I will continue to do my part regardless of what the other person does. And one of the reasons I talk about that is because that's part of what marriage is, but that's not the main reason I do it. I mainly do it to celebrate the gospel. God is not in a consumer relationship with you if you are in a relationship with him in Christ. When you're not on a date with God where you have to impress him. You're not in a job interview with God to earn his favor. If you know Jesus, if you pray like this tax collector prayed for mercy, then God will love you with fierce covenant love. In covenant love, God loves you unconditionally. That is, God loves you not because of what you bring, but because of who he is. And that's good news. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, Jesus says. And on his behalf, so I say to you, come to Jesus. The one who humbles himself, Jesus promises, will be exalted. Invite the worship team to come back up and lead us in a few songs. Would you pray with me? Lord, this morning, would you help us to see the wondrous cross? To be so unconcerned with others that we could lower our gaze like this tax collector, plead for mercy, and we could lift our face and see you smile. Lord, make the gospel real to us this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.